Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. Well, it's it's hard to believe that uh, we have we are now in like our thirty first message in the book of Mark. We have just gone through and we have walked through passage by passage, and so now we come to uh, one of the crossroads or the the pinnacle of our Christian faith. <clears throat> and I would like to tell you that this is a a pleasant topic, but there's nothing pleasant about it. And I will go ahead and tell you that. Uh, we have all uh, seen passion plays and movies and church productions of the crucifixion. And, and my goal today is not to uh, emphasize the physicality of the cross, but I do think that it's important for us to immerse ourselves into the text so that when we get to the main point of the crucifixion and the main point of the cross, it will resonate with you as it does with me. So with that said, we arrive to the pinnacle of Jesus' power. And that's been kind of the, the theme as we've gone through the book of Mark, is watching the power of Jesus and how we may be able to access that. And so the power that he had to endure, this excruciating torture of the cross, in order that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. You see, for you and I to have a, a father-child relationship with God our Creator. So I'm going to challenge you this morning to put aside any preconceived notions or pictures that you have seen of the cross or the crucifixion. Take a look this morning at these verses as I pray God will take us right there and put us within the pages so that we can see what He intends for us to see in these words. So today's is not for the faint of heart. It is real talk. I am grateful that our children are in children's church because I can be real with what the truth of the text says. What here in this real talk is we see real love, but we also see real sacrifice. So let's jump right in. Number one, verses 21 through 23 of Mark chapter 15. This is Jesus was brought to Golgotha. It says in verse 21, a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him Wine, drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. So we see at this point, Jesus has been scourged, he's been whipped, and now he has been led away to carry his cross. And I'll show you this this picture here. When we think of Jesus carrying his cross, that is what we picture, right? We've seen it in movies, we've seen it in, again, church productions, and we've seen it in pictures. This is what it looked like when Jesus carried his cross, and I would, I would hate to tell you this, but this is not what it looked like. You see, we learned from last week that Jesus had been flogged to the point that where there was not much skin left on his back. They adorned him with a stick, and they called it his king's scepter. They took that stick and pounded his crown of thorns onto his head, these two-inch 
thorns to where blood flowed from his head. If you've ever seen a head injury, you know how much blood that can be. And they were sarcastically calling him king of the Jews. It was sickening when I, when I see this. It hurts my heart to know that they were taking so much expense. At his, I mean, they were making fun of him at his expense. And as they led him away from that place to the execution site, we learned last week, it's not like they took the shortest route. What they would do when someone would be condemned to be crucified, they would have a parade route. Where they would take this person and that person would take the cross all through the city, all the way up to the final execution site. It's important to note here that you may see in your minds that picture of Jesus struggling to carry his full cross along this parade route. Did you know the, the entire weight of the cross was about 300 pounds? That's pretty heavy. And so typically the victim, they didn't carry the entire cross. The, the vertical beam would be up at the execution site at Golgotha, the place of the skulls. And so what Jesus had to carry is that they would take the, the cross member and they would basically tie his wrist to it. And it would be like carrying a railroad tie to the crucifixion site. I don't know if you ever tried to lift a railroad tie. It's tough. And especially after he had been beaten and whipped within an inch of his life. But yet he did it. He carried this. And the vertical beams were waiting for Jesus and the two thieves at the top of Golgotha to support the cross beams they were carrying. For a man who was fresh, healthy, and in shape, it may be possible. But for a man that was in Jesus' condition... It was tough. He had already endured so much trauma, yet was still forced to carry this tie. And now, let's take a look at Golgotha. This is one of the most recent photos of Golgotha. Maybe one day I'll be able to go see it on my own. But I do know that many people call it Golgotha for several reasons. Number one, there's different theories about it. But if you look at it just right, you can see the eyes, the nose, And it kind of looks like a face in the side of that mountain. That's where some people say Golgotha came from, place of the skull. Some people think it's because there were so many skulls that were that were executed there. Some people believe because it was nice, round, and smooth at the top is that it looked like a skull from that. So there are many different, but we know this. This was the execution site of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Golgotha is actually mentioned in three of the four Gospels of John, Matthew, and Mark. And the exact location is uncertain, but most prefer where it is now and where it's pictured at the Church of the Holy uh, Sepulchre. But uh, some people believe it's on a small hill called Gordon's Calvary. But either way, uh, this is where it happened. And so we see here... Notice the progression from verse 20 and 21. And i got to say, I, I've preached this many years, and I've looked at this story, and it wasn't until I, I heard uh, a man named David Gusick. He does an Enduring Word podcast, and he brought this out, and it floored me. I could not believe this. But if you look at verse 20, notice what it says. When they were finally tired of mocking him, 
They took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes on him again. Then they, check this out, then they led him away to be crucified. But then in just two verses later, verse 22, And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. It would be very easy to read over this. But the truth of the matter is, in verse 20, they led him. In verse 22, they brought him. What is the difference? It wasn't like they were lovingly carrying him and singing Kumbaya as they led him up to the cross. They were dragging him like a dead animal. He had lost the power to stand on his own, to carry his own cross. They asked another man, they asked, they told another bystander, pick up that cross as they drug Jesus to his execution site. That is the pain. That is the humility. That is the physicality. We look at Jesus and we think he is like Superman, but he was human, 100% human, 100% God. And at this moment, his humanness, his physicality was failing him. He went from being led out to being drugged, dragged to the cross. I don't know why I never caught that. But it's humbling. And it hurts my heart to think about it. The word brought signifies that Jesus could no longer physically move under his own physical strength. Brought means that he was literally dragged to the cross. And the Roman soldiers wanted to get the show on the road because they, want, they had things they had to do. They wanted to get all of this done before Passover came. And the crucifixion... They enlisted the help of a man who was spectating and carrying to carry Jesus Christ's cross. But let me tell you something. What seems as a random, hey, you carry the cross, is actually God's providence. Simon wanted to carry the cross. The Roman soldiers forced him to carry that cross. And Simon was likely a visitor in Jerusalem because many had come from all over the, all over the continent. They had come to be at the Passover feast, the celebration. And so uh, he didn't know much about Jesus. We know that because Cyrene, where he is from, was in South Africa, which was over 800 miles away. They didn't have Facebook and Twitter back then and news channels. He didn't know everything. All of a sudden, he was pulled into the middle of this. Many believe that Jesus carried his cross to the city gates until they couldn't carry it anymore. And then Simon took over. So let me tell you something. Here's a little bit of application. You ever felt like you couldn't go on? You felt like every ounce of strength that you had in your body was gone? You didn't know how you were going to take that next step? My friend, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. So don't tell me that when you pray to him, he can't understand what you're going through because he lived through that and he loves you. And the reason he's doing all this is to show you that that he is with you and he understands. One can hardly imagine the pain caused by a rough, heavy beam as he's carrying it. Think about it. His back is hamburger meat. 
So as he is carrying that railroad tie, and I don't mean to be gross, but I want you to feel the weight of this. As his, his back is, is, is probably on fire. And that wooden beam is rubbing up against it with every step that he takes. He could not go on anymore. And we know that later on, Mark mentions and, and um, <clears throat> Simon has two sons, Alexander and Rufus. But if you go to Romans chapter 16, verse 13, we can surmise that this changed Simon's life and his son's life because it says that this Rufus is the same one mentioned in Romans 16, 13. We can see that once Simon came to know what it really mean, meant to took up, take up Jesus' cross, it made an impact in him and his family. And then it goes on, verse 23, notice this. They offered him drugged, or they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. It's almost like today if you were to go into the doctor's office or the ambulance were to be picking you up and you're in so much pain, they would say, would you like me to give you something to take the edge off your pain? Yes. Not Jesus. They didn't have the fancy drugs they have today, but that's what they used. This was an antiseptic to take the edge off. But Jesus says, no, I don't want this. Now, now what's the significance of this? Well, the significance is, is that if he were to take that anesthetic, somebody could have said, well, he was just envisioning things. He was under the influence of the anesthesia. No, he took it straight on, no anesthetic. He was in his right mind. He was a son of God, and he endured that. Because Jesus refused any drug that would numb his pain. No one could say that he was hallucinating. He faced the torture of the cross with a clear mind without medication. And if this, all of this that I've talked about is not enough to disturb your soul and to shake you as it has mine, what we cover next is overwhelming. The crucifixion of Jesus, 26 through 27. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, King of the Jews. Now, if you are, if you're looking at your Bible and you look uh, right around the phrase they threw his dice for his clothes, you may see like a footnote to look at this verse at the bottom. It says probably Psalm 22, verse 8. The reason that is there is because this was prophesied, this very thing of the casting lots for his clothes was pre, pre-spoken or prophesied over a thousand years ago in the book of Psalms. The prophecy of the crucifixion is spot on. Men were, and, and the thing too is, is they cast lots for his clothes. I know that because of churches and, and ratings and movies and stuff like that, that no one's going to show a naked Jesus up on the cross. But I want you to know, normally in that culture, when men were crucified, to shame them even more, they would be nude. Now there's accounts that the Jewish people had a really big problem with that, and so there may have been a loincloth to cover the most important parts. 
But the goal of crucifixion is shame. The goal of crucifixion is slow, methodical, and torturous death. The crucifixion is so horrendous that you ever heard of the word excruciating? You heard the word excruciating? That is actually a term from the Roman word that means out of the cross. The Romans did not invent the form of crucifixion. However, they became the masters of it. The execution was meant to be slow and painful, not quick, not humane. Those that were executing them wanted maximum pain and maximum suffering. When Jesus was thrown to the ground to replace the ropes that tied him to that crossbeam with nails, they were not like the ten penny nails you get at your favorite hardware store. These were like railroad spikes. And the wounds from his scourging that were torn open now is full of dirt because he has been thrown on the ground. And they're contaminated. And it says about his hands and feet, the nails would be driven to the hand to enable a person to hang there. And and just to clarify something, you may have seen videos or presentations where they nail Jesus in the hand right here. That is not accurate. That is not where they nailed Jesus' hand. And you can even take you can take your thumb or a finger and put right at your wrist, right below your hand, you will feel that there is a little kind of like indention. That is where they would put the nails because in the Roman culture they didn't have a word for wrist, so when they say hands That was part of it. And so what they would do is they would put that nail right there because if they were to put it into the hand, the 27 bones that make up your hand would just obliterate. The skin would rip and they would fall right off of the cross. But yet they would take that nail and they would would drive it into this part right here and that person would hang there. And also, by the way, by the way, you have a nerve right here also. So it was designed that when it hit that nerve, you would feel searing pain throughout your entire body. And the whole method of crucifixion and the cross is that when you get on the cross, your rib cage is kind of constricted. So you are fighting, literally pulling up with your arms, pushing up with your feet to try to catch your next breath. If you've ever had like a bad chest cold or, or bronchitis or, or worse, and you just feel like I can't get my breath, that is a, a glimpse of what Jesus was going through. With hands and feet nailed, the victim would not be able to breathe unless he pushed upon his nailed feet. And each time he slivered back, his back would rub against that wooden cross. There are some other factors, too. History tells us that it was common for insects to burrow into the open wounds and the eyes and the nostrils of those that were being crucified. Birds of prey would feast on these dying victims and no one would chase them away. Often, those on the cross were left to be eaten by animals. And death on the crucifixion could come in many different ways. It could be hypovolemic shock, which meaning you've lost too much blood. It could come from suffocation. It could come from dehydration. It could come from a heart attack. But it also could come from a heart rupture. 
And you may have heard this before, but you know, in other accounts, when they stuck Jesus into his side, right under the rib cage, what flowed out? Do you remember, church? Blood and water flowed. What that means is all of the water that was in the pericardial sac and the blood from the heart after it exploded in that pericardial sac, Jesus, is, Jesus died from a ruptured, broken heart. If you had to put his de- on his death certificate what it was that killed him, it would be a broken heart. And usually, if it was taking too long, the soldiers would break the legs of those on the, cru- on the cross. That way they couldn't push up and they would die faster. But since it was prophesied even in the Old Testament that his bones would not be broken or the Messiah, Jesus' legs were never broken. And that sign that hung in mockery of Jesus that was meant as an insult would proclaim the truth that Jesus would soon prove he is the king of kings. And I'm telling you, this is tough. And it says here that that Jesus is mocked. In verses 27. Let me make sure I get this right. Yep. We see that Jesus took their mockery. They spit on him. They made fun of him. The very same people that, that he ministered to were now his judge and his it says, verse 27, two revolutionaries, or some translations say criminals, they were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha ha, look at you, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down off of that cross. That's what people even say today. Jesus, you're so powerful. Do something. Show us a trick. Show us your power. They don't want to take it on faith. They want to take it on the show. My friends, how much more does Jesus have to show you than what he's going through right now? The leading priests and teachers of religious law, they also mock Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down off of the cross so we can see it and believe Him. I am sure that that was dripping with sarcasm. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed Him. Now, have you ever seen a time where your favorite sports team, maybe it's, it's, maybe it's your kid's sports team or even your, your one that you watch on TV or the ones that you attend, there's random times where your favorite team is just whipping the other team. I mean, it is just ugly they are getting beat so bad. And you, most people will say, man, put the second string in. Give these kids that don't get to play a whole lot. Give them a chance, but there are just some times where those teams will keep in the first string and they will just pummel them and pummel them and pummel them into the ground. And if you're the home team, you're shouting, oh, this is great, woo! But if you're on the other team, you probably will end up leaving because it is so uncomfortable. I want you to know, death thinks it's winning at this point. 
The religious leaders that crucified Jesus thought that they had won at this point. So Jesus took their mockery to provide an opportunity. One of the two thieves on the cross cried out to Jesus. We know this from Luke 29:3, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, You're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Verse 40, But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God? Even when you have been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here we have an innocent man being crucified along two people that were guilty for their crimes. Although the scoffers and mockers, they asked Jesus to take himself off the cross. (laughs) The fact that he stayed up there proved that he was there to do what God called him to do. You realize at any moment Jesus could have said, I'm out of here. And we wouldn't have had a prayer. We would all be destined for hell. But no, he stayed up there. And in the moment Jesus dreaded the most, you would think that the moment Jesus dreaded the most was what we just talked about, the crucifixion. But it gets much more sinister, much more hurtful as we look at verses 33 through 41. It says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. What I want you to know, when you read that and that darkness fell, this is not just an allegory or a symbolism of what might have happened. There are sources that are not even Christian sources that were, that, that were out at that time that document this time of darkness. The world went dark. And I don't know how to explain how that happened, but it did. Then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Daddy, where have you gone? Daddy, why have you turned your back on me? This is the moment that Jesus dreaded most. Not the physical pain or the torture, but the spiritual weight of the sin of the world that is placed on him. That is why the sky went dark. God couldn't even look at his only son because of the sin that was on him. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where my sin weighs on me heavily. I can't imagine the weight of everybody's sin that they have ever done being placed on Jesus at this moment. Your sin is placed on Jesus. My sin is placed on Jesus. And for the first time in all of his life, he is separated from his father for something he didn't even do. Jesus knew what great pain and suffering would take a toll on him in his life, but he never knew the separation from his father. But now he knew what that was. And there was a significant sense in which Jesus rightly felt forsaken by God, the Father, at this moment. If you've ever felt forsaken by God, Jesus knows that too, my friends. Verse 35 says, Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. I'm sure Jesus was going, Really? I'm not saying Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could 
drink. I want you to understand that he had been up there. Dehydration had set in. The sun had been beating down on him. His throat was dry. His mouth, he had cotton mouth. And most people that were in the situation that he was in at this point weren't talking at all. They were unconscious and just waiting for their heart to stop beating. But not Jesus. This, this, this gall, this, this liquid that they used... They filled with a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink it. Then they said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down now. So with his throat moistened enough to talk, Jesus uttered another loud cry and he breathed his last. The fact that Jesus could speak at this point, again, was amazing. And it says in verse 38, please don't go past this verse And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn from the bottom to the top. Is that what it says? Absolutely not. It says it was torn from the top to the bottom. And and just to kind of go on the sidetrack just for a second, if you'll allow me, back in the Old Testament when they would worship in the temple or when they would take the tabernacle through the wilderness, there would be this area, and in the temple there was like a six-foot thick curtain that would go around the Holy of Holies where it was believed that the presence of God was. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. And so believed that that was where God was. And so at the moment, immediate results, immediately once our sins was placed on Jesus, the barrier between man and God was ripped. Not from the bottom to the top. No man could do that. But God ripped it from the top to the bottom. A curtain that we could have never ripped. He ripped it and said, okay, no longer are you separated from me because of what my son has done. The Bible talks about it being a new covenant. Because of what my son has just done, you can have direct access to me. You no longer need a priest. You you don't even need a pastor to approach God. All you've got to do is pray to him and go to him and talk to him. And he is there for you because of what Jesus has done. This is something only God could do. You see, religion is all about what we can do. Religion is us coming up with our our doctrines and our our opinions and, and our traditions of what we think God pleases God. But the truth of the matter is, it's not about us pleasing God. God has served us. God has loved us by sending us His Son, Jesus Christ. And we can have fellowship with Him through that new covenant. In verse 39, I love this. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the Son of God. I don't know if this is the case, but it could have very well been the soldier that won some of his clothes when they were gambling for it. It could have been the very soldier as the one that drove the nails into his hands and feet. But regardless, he was part of the persecution. And now he is looking up and saying, Whew, we messed up. What do we get from that? What I want you to see is that even some that persecute Jesus and in him. I think Paul would be a good example of that too, don't you think? Verse 40 says, Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come to him to Jerusalem were there also. While the men were concerned about saving their own lives, the the men had scattered. They were in fear of their own life, but the women were there. They were faithful. They didn't really care what happened to them. They cared about what happened to Jesus, and they were there in the moment that he needed them the most. So this thing, that that this uh, mentality, that ministry, that... That, that women are less than, I believe this proves otherwise. I don't know where this church would be without some of the godly women we have in this church. And then, when Jesus breathed his last, the power of the cross was made complete. If you would, just turn to a second, one verse. John 19.30. Just, just turn there just for a minute. I don't have it on the screen. I had it in my notes. I wasn't planning on sharing it. But if you have it in your Bible, I would like for you to look at John 19.30. This is very important. When Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the power of the cross was made complete. It says in John 19, verse 30. Let me know you're there. All right. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. My friends, the religious Jews did not kill Jesus. Pilate did not kill Jesus. Roman did not did not killed Jesus. Jesus gave up his life. It wasn't man's decision. It was Jesus's. And when the time for it to be done was not to man. So don't you think that somebody got Jesus? Again, all of this was God's plan, his father's plan, and it went out to a T. It is finished, which is one word of the ancient Greek, the word telestai, It means paid in full. And one thing I forgot to tell you, if you go back and look at Golgotha, if you ever, you know, we sing and we talk about at Calvary, the word Calvary is translated into Golgotha. That's where Calvary comes from. So here we have paid in full. Jesus' last cry was not someone who was defeated, but someone who was won. The battle was won at the cross, my friends, not lost. Though they were reveling and though, though evil thought that they had got this, we are going to find out next time we are together of how they were dead wrong because we get to talk about the But today, for this moment, as we close our time together, Jesus paid in full the debt of sin that we owed and completed the plan that his father God had for him. The power of the cross, the death on the cross, was and is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for you and I. 
Romans 5, 8, I love that verse. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of our sin and rebellion was nailed to the cross. It says that in Colossians 2.14. It is the power of God for our salvation and foolish to those who reject it. 1 Corinthians 1.18. And if Jesus had not endured the cross, one may say there is a limit to how much God could love us. Would you want to serve a God that says, I love you up to this point? No. God gave everything for you. And I, do you know the power of the cross in your life today? It is my prayer that this message has shook you like it has shaken me. I don't preach this at you. It is a good reminder of what Jesus has done for me. And I hope it is the same for you. And if you have heard this and you realize the weight of your sin and and what was done to accomplish the forgiveness of that, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, today can be the day that you know for sure that that blood was shed was for your sins. We're going to have a brief time of invitation. If you'd like to come and accept Jesus or rededicate your life or join this church, whatever it may be, get baptized. This is time for you to respond. We will rejoice with any decision that is made. Would you please stand? And Donna, would you come lead?